Why don't you open your Bibles, if you would please, to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, find verse 8. To this point, the only times that I have been overseas internationally, except for, you know, the day trips across the Mexican border to buy vanilla, you know, or, or on a Caribbean cruise, um, have been on mission trips. I've been to Canada, which really doesn't count. I mean, let's just be honest. It's, it's America about 10 degrees off. If you've ever been there, you know what I mean. <laughs> been to Canada. More recently, I've been to Peru. Uh, in 2006, Julie and I spent about two weeks in China. And then my first experience overseas on a mission trip was in the nation of Brazil. Now, I was the pastor of a small rural Tennessee church at that point in time. And this may seem obvious to you. Going to one of the world's great cities in Rio de Janeiro from Leoma, Tennessee was a bit of a culture shock for me. Uh, it was a culture shock, though, in ways and disorienting in ways that I really could not have ever anticipated. Uh, you know, everybody, everybody um, knows a little Spanglish. You know, you, you, you can kind of mix Spanish and English together and, and you can figure out what's on a sign or you can kind of figure out what's being said to you, but the native language, the uh, language of Brazilians is Portuguese, and there was, there was nothing that I could make heads nor tails of. I needed an interpreter for any, everything, to read signs, to read menus, to, to have any opportunity to even speak to someone. And then also, and, and if you've ever done this, you know what I'm talking about, it's the first time I hopped the equator. And so it's the first time where over the course of a flight, I changed seasons. I left the uh, spring turning into summer in Tennessee and arrived in Rio with fall turning into winter. And the angle of the sky was, the sun in the sky was, was just weird to me. I mean, I was, I was just lost, as lost as a Tennessee country boy can possibly be anywhere in the world. I was just lost. And then I went to church. I'm not kidding. Then I went to church, and though I didn't understand the words, I knew the tunes and could sing along, and I found in, in those little churches where I preached through an interpreter in suburban Rio de Janeiro, the familiar rhythms of my little country church in Tennessee, and so for the first time, it really occurred to me, Now I'd known the right answer but for the first time, it really occurred to me that God's church is a global church. Let the weight of that land again. God's church is a global church. And we need the global church. In fact, the greatest Christian that many would say ever lived understood that he needed the global church. His name is Paul, and he wrote the book of Romans. And we're going through the book of Romans together this year. I ask you when we began to find Romans chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 8. Let's just walk through the, the handful of verses we have selected for today together and see how Paul appreciated the global church. He says in verse 8, first, after having done the introductory material that we looked at last week. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, for all of the Christians in Rome, for the church in Rome. 
I thank God for you. And then he says, because your faith is proclaimed in all of the world. Now, why, why is their faith, why is the faith of the Roman Christians something that is, is, is widely known among Christians? Well, I want you to put yourself in the place of a first century Christian. You're in the extreme minority in any interaction in which you find yourself. You are harassed and you are beleaguered by, by Jews who think you're perverting the Jewish faith and by Gentiles who do not get your unwillingness and unyieldedness in, in surrendering to Caesar. You're an outcast anywhere, but you've heard there are Christians in Rome, in Rome, the capital city, the capital city of the world. And you, you could very easily begin to think, well, you know, it's hard, but man, if, if Christians can exist in Rome, they can exist anywhere. And if there are Christians in Rome, who knows what can become of the gospel if it lands in the right ears and begins to influence enough people. That's why the church in the world at that time was curious about and thankful for the church in Rome. And he goes on and says, for God is my witness. For God is my witness. Jesus, when he really wanted to underscore the truth of something that he wanted to say, would say, verily, verily, translated in our modern languages as truly, truly. It's a way of saying, I really need you to zero in and understand the passion and conviction behind what I'm about to say. Paul didn't do that. He would say instead, for God is my witness. So he's drawing them in. I want you to hear the conviction here of what I'm about to say. He says, for God is my witness. And then he does what Paul does. In case you missed it, I'm just going to throw everything my language will allow me to throw at what I just said so that you will know the depth of my conviction. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you. He says, you need to know that I pray for the Roman church. I pray without ceasing, hyperbolically, saying that this is just a regular thing I do. I pray for you. Specifically in this way, verse 10, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. When I pray about the Roman Christians... The thing that ultimately drives it all is that I pray that God will give me an opportunity to be with you. I want to be with you. I want to visit you. Now, again, I, I think it's important not just for today's text, but really for the entire book of Romans to understand how badly Paul wanted to go to Rome. He had never been. He had never met these Christians. The entire book serves as an introduction, introduction, not just of Paul, but of his core theology. That's the reason it's such a rich book, an introduction of Paul by himself to these Roman Christians. But here's, 
Here's why he wanted so badly to go. In the book of Acts, chapter 19, verse 21, we read about Paul's experience in the town of Ephesus. And things had been pretty, um, I don't know, lively to that point, And they were about to get even worse. There was going to be a riot over Paul and his preaching. But in transitioning to that uh, retelling of the event of the riot... Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, records, Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit, meaning that he felt deep conviction and calling from God to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. Now, it's almost certain that Paul didn't know the extent of how that journey would play its, its way out when Luke records those words. But he probably had a big idea he was walking into trouble because his goal was to get to Jerusalem. Paul had had to be, be, be really under cover of darkness, squired out of town, lest people who were after him kill him years before. But now he's going back to Jerusalem. That can't be good. But as he gets closer and closer to Jerusalem, and as he's warned more and more by Christians who begin to speak to him, he begins to figure out, God wants me to go to Jerusalem so I can get arrested. And then I'll avail myself of the Roman judicial system. And I'm going to get to Rome as a prisoner. But every Step of the way through the Roman judicial system, I'm going to seed the gospel. And you see him do this in the book of Acts. And his hope, his prayer was that he would be able to argue his case someday before Caesar himself. See, Paul was desperate to go to Rome because he believed it held the possibility of being the grand slam for global evangelization. He was right, by the way. Christianity became the law of the land because of the conversion of an emperor three centuries later. So Paul really wanted to go to Rome, not to sightsee, but to get the gospel at the highest reaches of world power. Then in verse 11, he says, <laughs> in case you missed it, I long to see you. And then he says, I long to see you that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. This is every short-term missionary's life first. I mean, we say we're going to go on mission somewhere, maybe overseas, and we all get matching t-shirts, and we go through the airport, and we arrive in some foreign country, and we say to them, I'm an American Christian, and I'm here to help you. This is kind of what Paul is saying. Paul is saying here, I, I can't wait to get there. So that, so that I might share my ministry with you. So that I can strengthen you in your conviction. But then he goes where, where, where American short-term missionaries end up being. He knew it at the outset. He says, I long to see you that I might impart some spiritual gift to you. That is, verse 12, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Both yours and mine. If you've ever done a short-term trip. You, you understand the surprising thing that happens. You've gone to help, and you've gone to encourage, and you've gone to equip, and you, you end up leaving feeling like you have taken more and you have received more 
than you ever gave. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I can come to you and I can share my ministry with you and I I pray that it strengthens you and encourages you, but you're going to strengthen me and you're going to encourage me in, in what I hope to do as well. And so he's celebrating all of that. And then in verse 13 he says, I want you to know, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap a harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. A little background context here might be helpful. The the early church tended to start in a uniform way. Jews who had responded to Jesus as Savior would go to their local synagogues and they would begin to proclaim through the use of the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And members of that synagogue would receive Jesus as Lord. And almost uniformly, this would provoke, pr- promote conflict within the synagogue. Again, I shared with you when I got started, I, I kind of cut my teeth being the the pastor of a small uh, rural Tennessee church. Let me tell you what, uh, Wednesday night business meetings once a month better than wrestling. I mean, it was fantastic. Well, you can take that and run it on steroids and this, this anger and this animosity. In fact, at times it got completely out of hand. And once in Rome, it got so completely out of hand that the emperor Claudius, not being able to distinguish between a Jewish Christian and a, and, and a regular Jew, just decided they were all troublemakers. He kicked all the Jews out of Rome. Every one of them. You're done. We're tired of messing with you. All of you pack up and leave. Now, one of those or couples that was removed from Rome under this edict from the emperor Claudius were uh, the, the people that we read about in the book of Acts, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, who discipled a young man named Apollos, who may be the one that wrote the book of Hebrews. We don't know. But, I mean, this was a, a group of really committed, deep Christians that got kind of cast out with the bathwater, as it were, when the Jews were removed from uh, Rome. And what did that leave? Well, it left... What inevitably happened in all of these places where the gospel began to establish itself, it left the Gentiles, the non-Jews who had come to faith in Jesus Christ, to fend for themselves. And so there began to be a divergence of how that church was established, had a Jewish character to it, with Gentiles involved, the Jews gone, and began to have a distinctly Gentile character. About five years later, the Jews come back and the Gentiles say, what do you think with what we've done with the place? And they weren't too happy. And uh, the part of the reason the book of of Romans is written, and we'll look at two very key verses next week, was to address these two people that were trying to integrate together because we all needed one another in order to be able to accomplish the mission of God. So that's where he is. But Paul a man who, who believed that his life mission was not to take the gospel to Jewish synagogues anymore, but to take it to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, preach exclusively to them, was incredibly intrigued about the prospect of something of a pristine Gentiles-only church. He was anxious to go there to help them reach those that they knew, but also the other Gentiles in Rome. 
He says, I'm under obligation, I'm called by God, both to Greeks, and that means those from a Greek culture of which the Roman Christians would have availed themselves of, both to Greeks and to barbarians, non-Greek, non-Greek speaking culture. Both to the wise, again, referencing the classically trained from a Greek philosophy uh, people, and, and then also the foolish, those who maybe had no education and weren't from that Greek background. He says, I, I'm just called at the core of my being to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the non-Jewish nations and peoples of the world. So, I am eager, he says, to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This is why Paul wanted to go. And we'll look at two really key things next week in our passage. But right now, let's stop and think about what we've read today. Last week, we made it a really exciting announcement. We shared with you that our long-standing goal of partnering with Compassion International to plant a church internationally was coming to fruition, and that through the rest of the fall and into the spring, we would be working with Compassion International to plant a church in Aldeas Altas, Brazil, an impoverished area of northeastern Brazil. And already, Pastor Giovanni is on the ground, and he has established a site, and he's beginning to work to reach the families, to, to establish the core of that church. Ground will be broken uh, through the funds that we are going to provide sometime in December. And then sometime next spring, our church will be given the first chance of anybody in the world to be able to sponsor the children who will be a part of the Compassion Project there at $38 a month. And as a part of that, they and their families are exposed to the gospel and the gospel can begin to spread and take root in a crazy way in Aldeas Altus. They need you. That's easy for you to get. Of course they need me. They need our $75,000, $80,000 as a church. They need lots of us to commit $38 a month or, or more to be able to, to reach the, the children of that area. Of course they need us. But you need them. You need impoverished Christians on another continent south of the equator. You need them because this is a global church. You're saying, well, I, I'm not certain how I need them. Let me help you with three things as we kind of draw things to a close here. First of all, you need the global church because you need a global perspective. You need a global perspective. Let me say something to you. I believe it to the depth of my being. The primary cause of the discouragement that characterizes the American church is the self-centeredness of the American church. We tend to think if it's bad for us, it's bad everywhere. That if things aren't going well for us, then the gig is up, all hope 
is absolutely lost. And I, I ab- I'm agreeing with you that the growing secularization of, of our country is making Christianity a more marginalized voice. I agree with you. But the church is just fine. In 1970, there were 112 evangelicals in the world. And by evangelicals, I mean those who define themselves theologically by the term evangelical. Born again, personal experience with Jesus Christ as Savior. In 2020, there were 386 million self-identified evangelicals in the world. 70% of them live south of the equator. Which means that if you were to run into an evangelical, they are most likely not American and not white. Global Christianity now numbers 2 billion people. It is the only world religion that numbers over 2 billion people. There are only two other world religions that number over a billion, and it's been recently that they have come about. By 2050, there will be 3 billion people in the world who identify with Christianity. Half of them will live on the continent of Africa. By 2050, there will be more Christians in China than there are Americans in America. The church is doing just fine. And if we understand that the church isn't just about Blue Valley or the American church, but that it's a global enterprise, and when we find ourselves beleaguered, like Christians of the world were beleaguered at the time, and we hear the gospels flourishing worldwide, we're encouraged. We give thanks because the church of Jesus Christ will triumph. It always will. The gates of hell, it was set up this way. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. A global perspective allows you to know that and experience that, which leads me to the second reason that you need that little poor church in Aldeus Altus. Mutual encouragement. We need the global church for mutual encouragement. When, when you understand that the church is flourishing everywhere, and some of those places are incredibly difficult, not just because of impoverished circumstances, but because of real live persecution, you can think, well, we can do it here. We can do it here. We can, we can exist. We can practice. We can We can advance the cause of Jesus Christ. We can be encouraged as we think about the global church existing in far more difficult circumstances that we find ourselves in. Finally, we need the global church because of a shared mission. We, not Blue Valley by itself and not you as an individual Christian, but we are called to go to the world and make disciples. And every Christian you meet has that same global call. Let me tell you something I wasn't able to share with you last week because of time. The reason that we, as 
as Blue Valley Baptist Church are getting the opportunity to partner right now, this calendar year, with Compassion International is because of the idea of shared mission. Compassion International is going to, in the next 18 months, establish about 26 churches. They could do far more, but the pandemic and funds available kind of limit that. They can do 26 churches. Two of them come from Baptist theology. And there were lots of Baptist churches in line, cash in hand, ready to say, we will be that sponsoring church to help establish and plant a church uh, internationally. We'll, we'll take one of those too. There was great competition. And Blue Valley, in all likelihood, based on what I'm told, was the smallest. The smallest of churches. We had money. It was set aside because of your faithful giving to Multiply 2028. We had the money, but we were one of the smallest of the churches. And being a small church, when you're really kind of limited on your church planting as an organization, is not helpful because they, they expect us then to come in behind and sponsor these kids to kind of help get the ministry rolling. And so they were asked, <laughs> our representatives there arguing our case, why would we pick Blue Valley? They are so much smaller than this church and this church and this church and this church. And here's what they were able to tell them. It's always a good thing to want to plant a church. But a lot of these other churches are wanting to plant to just say, see what we did. And put it on the website and feel good about themselves. Blue Valley understands that God has called them to establish campuses locally and to plan autonomous churches locally, regionally, nationally, and internationally. It's their mission. It's what drives them. It's what they are building their church around. They aren't just doing it to do it. They're doing it out of a sense of mission, and that moved us to the front of the line. Shared mission. That's one of the benefits of a global church. We need the global church. We need to understand the global enterprise that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need it so that our perspective can be framed about how the church is doing in our world. We need it because we could use the encouragement that Christians that are in far more difficult circumstances can give us because they're flourishing where they are. We need it because it's our mission to reach the world and we can't do it by ourselves, but we collectively as the church can. We need the global church. And so then what do we do? How can we do something with what we have learned this morning? I'm going to ask Pastor Jonathan to come right now. He's going to give you three very simple ways to not just think about today's message, but begin to put feet to today's message in your life. Pastor Jonathan. All right, so I hope you have a piece of paper and pen or your cell phone where you can take some notes. If you go to our app, you can take notes on, the, on our app there. The first thing is probably the easiest thing that we can do, and that is pray. And it's something that we should all be doing. Um, in, in light of our mission and vision here at Blue Valley. But we can start off praying for this church plant in Brazil, uh, praying for Pastor Giovanni. That's his name. Go ahead and write that down. 
Pray for Pastor Giovanni and his family. And then also pray for the, the building project. Because as you know of any of you that have been involved in some type of building project, there is always something that comes up. And so let's just pray for that to go smoothly. And then starting a church plant is not an easy task. So pray for ears that are willing to hear and hearts that are willing to listen as Pastor Giovanni and his team begin reaching out to the community there. The second thing is something that we've already begun doing, and that is to give. As you heard Pastor Derek say, later on in March or, or the first part of March, we'll have the opportunity to, to uh, sponsor Compassion Children uh, for $38 a month. You have that opportunity to, to minister to, to a child and to a family um, in, in that way. And Compassion will give us 150 kids uh, to, to sponsor. And so we have that opportunity to sponsor those kids. If it's just one, if it's multiple children, um, you'll have that opportunity to give in that way. But then also we can continue to sacrificially give to our Multiply 2028 campaign, which right now we have, we have met the initial uh, giving that's going towards our missions. Now everything else goes to pay off debt. And as soon as we get this debt taken care of, it opens up the floodgates to allow us to continue to plant churches, to, to do ministry, not only here, but the rest of the world. And so continue to sacrificially give in that way. And then finally, do you recognize the song that Pastor John's playing? Wherever he leads is the title. The words go, wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Now, Pastor David Neely says this. He says, you can't sing the words to this song unless you have a passport. Unless you're ready to go. And so maybe that's a challenge for us this morning. If I'm willing to say, Lord, wherever you lead, I'll go. Let's be prepared to do it. Go sign up, get a passport. Say, yes, Lord Jesus, wherever you're calling me to go, I'm ready and I'm prepared. And maybe that is to head to Brazil when the, when the doors open up and give us that opportunity to go down there. But maybe this morning the Lord's not calling you to Brazil. He's just calling you to your next door neighbor. He's saying, will you go? Or to your person that you work with. Will we go? Will we be prepared? Let's take the gospel everywhere. Because it is the good news. It is the good news. Let's don't miss out on that opportunity.